Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. This is our fourth week on the Yoga Sutra, and we've been studying together the third chapter, which is uh, the chapter most people skip uh, in this short text, which is only about 196 lines, the entire text. 195, 196, I can't remember. And um, I can't say don't quote me on that anymore. The third chapter is called Supernatural Powers. It's my favorite title. You'll see why in a few weeks. Um, so I thought maybe we could just go through what we've covered so far before I launch into a new line. Um, we're just going to go week by week, line by line. Maybe sometimes we'll get through two lines, sometimes we'll get through two words. There's no rush. Um, so the first... Uh, line we looked at is Desha uh, Bandash Chitasya Dharana meaning um, Dharana or concentration is how Chip translates it here but I would actually just translate this as mindfulness or meditation Dharana is when consciousness or your attention starts to connect with a field So maybe it's connected with the field of sensation, it's connected with the field of the breath, it's connected with the field of sound. And whenever there's distraction, instead of your overcommitment to whatever story you enjoy, you come back again to this feeling of breathing, the experience of sensations in the body, or uh, sound, or whatever the given um, meditation practices. Uh, In line two... Patanjali then says, um, in dhyana, so he's saying, so after you get this practice of dharana, which is the sixth limb of Ashtanga Yoga, um, which is what we call mindfulness practice. And I think I spoke about how the word mindfulness comes from the word smriti or sati, which means to remember. So once you can bring your attention back, recalling what's actually going on in this moment of experience, then you get dhyana. For those of you who are Theravadan Buddhists, this is the term jhana in Pali. And um, in dhyana, the flow of attention starts to align with the object in a way where there's much less distraction. So it's a little bit like this candle. If you look at the candle, you can become very aware looking at the flame that there is some agitation in the air. So um, as this candle starts to settle, which it might do if I stop talking, then this would be like dhyana, right? It's like a can, it's like a flame in a windless room. And then when you can get concentrated in dhyana, what starts to happen is you get samadhi. Sometimes it's called samadhi jhana in Vipassana language. Um, And what this basically means, and this is what we covered last week, what this basically means is that the concentration is settled enough that there are not distractions. 
the hindrances that arise that we're usually mindful of when they arise are not coming in. And I realize when I start to talk about that territory, that might not be your experience. Because this usually is uh, the experience of someone who's done quite a lot of practice, or they're on retreat, or they're lucky. Um, The image that we explored last week was how most of the time when we're trying to concentrate in meditation practice, it's a little bit like being on an ark. You're at the top of the ark, you get a little bit settled, and then because of uh, the distractions, laziness, um, whatever fantasies you have, um, not eating well, there are so many uh, uh, hindrances, we slip off the side of the ark. We usually you know, fall to one side or the other. And the difference between dhyana and samadhi is that the ark is inverted. So instead of being at the top of the ark, always sort of slipping off from side to side, we're kind of, things flip, and we feel more held in the concentration. So that when something arises um, that's distracting, it sends us back to concentration in a much more fluid way. And that's why you often hear meditation teachers talk about training your attention. And that's not sort of language that I use that much, but that is what we're doing. And so um, that move from dhyana to samadhi is, is sort of important territory to understand. And what we explored last week is, and I think I went into this quite a lot of detail last week, how when you finish the end of your exhale and you actually stay concentrated there, then something starts happening where other material doesn't arise anymore. And you know that's happening because the feeling of pleasure arises. And I called this last week the adolescent phase of meditation because people go crazy for this. So you're on retreat and someone actually starts getting concentrated and they get filled with a feeling of contentment and peace and joy. For real. And then they think they got it. And they did. They got that. And then there's a kind of fork in the road of practice. And I actually think this is the major fork in the road for long-term practitioners. Is then you have to make this decision of letting go of that experience. Which sounds to you probably like, oh, you know, that's so easy. But actually... When meditation starts feeling really, really peaceful, it's really hard not to get caught up in that. And that's why I call it the adolescent phase, because it's the point where you can also see how you're caught in the internal pleasure, and then let go of that also. And then I think that that's kind of a big insight in one's life, is to actually see the difference between wanting pleasure and wanting truth. Wanting to look honestly. And I think I talked about this last week also, that one of the interesting things that happens when you start meditating and you get concentrated is that some part of us wants to open up to what we're feeling, even if it's pain, And simultaneously, we want it to feel good. And that's the first noble truth. And this is true for all of us. We want to be one with dukkha, and we want it to be kind of pleasurable. So, as I said last week, the insight into suffering is suffering. The insight into suffering is not being above suffering. It's actually the experience of, you know, aching. Um, <clears throat> doesn't that sound nice? Okay. <clears throat> okay. Then Patanjali says concentration. Okay, I should. I, I need to use the Sanskrit words here. So, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi <clears throat> are what he he now invents a term that I, I had never encountered earlier called sangyama. Yama is restraint. Sam means to come together. So it's the coming together of the restraints. It's a little bit like what meditation teachers um, sometimes call guarding the sense doors. 
Um, he calls this the perfect discipline. And when this is happening, you start to get insight. And this is really what we finished focusing on last week, that one of the interesting things that concentration brings is insight. Insight into impermanence, uh, into the futility of clinging. And I think even when you're just trying to follow the end of your exhale, I don't know, what was your experience? Could, could anybody really notice the end of the exhale without messing with it too much? Yeah? What did I feel or did I notice it? Both. Two questions. Yeah. Uh, I noticed it and then in my body usually I feel like, um, well, a lot of like tingling sensations, many different feelings. Mm-hmm. But like I, I feel like um, almost like things are popping. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like space. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's painful, and then it's just mm. and then it tingles. Yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. That's it. Okay. Yeah. So somebody else. That's really clear. Really, really clear. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. You have to just speak up a little bit because I'm full of mucus. <laughs> I think it helped me like focus. And, uh-huh. um, I just gave it a bit more, like it allowed me to concentrate and um, just really focus in a very one-pointed way. Yeah. And the fact that I just um, was a bit more aware of that breath before going into the little bongo world. Uh-huh. Somebody else, Grant. I couldn't feel it. You couldn't feel it. I mean, I felt like it disappeared before there was something to feel. Uh huh. I'd feel the top of the breath very clearly. Yeah. And then as it came down, it just seemed to get finer until there was nothing, and there was a much longer pause at the end of the exhale. Yeah. Than at the inhale. Uh-huh. And that would be where where other thoughts were in in that bit where it seemed to dissolve, and thoughts would come and seem uh-huh. to be the place. Where yeah, it almost seems sometimes like the thinking and the images arise on the inhale. And the exhale seems to be more the place where they're kind of dissolving. The thing is, is that um, two things happen at the end of your exhale. There's two different kinds of samadhi possible. One is to have this experience of just concentrating and really getting finely into that place and staying there. And the other possibility, which is more common, is called momentary samadhi, where you just have a moment where you're fully there. And then on the inhale, you're kind of pulled back, pulled back out again, or something's pulled back out again. Did you want to say more? Lana? A pause in a feeling way. Uh huh. Yeah. Is it anxious for anybody? Anybody find it anxious? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you say something about it? I almost felt the second I would forget to breathe. Like, uh-huh. Oh my gosh, I better. Not that I better breathe, but that I was forgetting. I might forget how to breathe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. in some sort of cosmic yeah. way. So uh-huh. I was uh, pretty anxious. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it was very quick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. <laughs> you keep investigating that. <laughs> Did you have your hand up? No? Sorry. Oh, you can go ahead. I had a similar feeling. I almost panicked at the... Yeah. I wasn't trying to figure out if it was So you don't you this is so hard to be able to experience 
sorry, Andre, for using that word. <laughs> to, to feel, to notice the end of the exhale without making it work out a certain way. That's like a whole knot there that you can spend a few years on. Okay, and that's your that's your homework. <laughs> Andre, did you have your hand up? No. Um, okay. So, um, so when we use the term samadhi, and now I'm just going to talk a little bit more, not from Patanjali's commentary, but sort of how I teach meditation and what I notice. Um, there's two different kinds of samadhi. Um, one is. And this is just the first level of samadhi. So I don't mean there's two kinds of samadhi. There's six in some schools. There are eight levels of samadhi. We won't get into that yet. Um, but at the beginning, when you get concentrated, there's two kinds. The first kind we're going to call one-pointedness. And that's when you can gather all of your attentive energy and settle it in a single field. And... This is when you start to notice that in the previous forms of meditation you've been doing, your mind is flitting about with before you even realize it. A little bit like what Grant said, like by the time you go and catch it, it's something else already. You, you can't catch it. But you know you're concentrating when it's, it's there right in front of your eyes, so to speak that it's not flitting about so much. And um, in Pali, this is called bhavana, or bhava, which means um, causing to be developed. In other words, that you can use this practice of bhava, of becoming. Um, most people think about meditation practice as non-becoming, right? not doing anything. But usually this phase is called bhavana, which means to become. That you're actually training your, your mind. And what's actually being trained here, Patanjali says in line point um, uh, 3.9, is the samskaras, the latent impressions. So that there are grooves you have um, that are psychological, physical, emotional, cultural. They have to do with your gender. They have to do with how much money you have in the bank. They have to do with your childhood. They have to do with your ancestors. We have all these grooves. For example, the groove of not sitting on the floor. Our ancestral DNA is not floor-bound, it's chair-bound. Um, so there's so many ways that sitting still is working with those deep grooves. So when you're working with these grooves in meditation practice, what's happening is as you're developing non-reactivity, neuropsychologically, culturally, emotionally, you're developing new habits. Once I taught a workshop to psychiatrists in Cape Cod, and one psychiatrist called this cognitive behavioral therapy on steroids. <laughs> which is a term I really, really liked. Um, and so what's happening, and, and if you look at line nine, you can see this, um, is that every kshana, every moment where there's nirodaha, where there's not clinging to what's showing up, creates new sanskaras. In other words, the practice of non-doing is a kind of doing where you're training your mind and body and heart um, in such a way where um, you're beginning to meet your life in a fresh way, in a new way. You're becoming, as the door says, a person's. And what you're aware of, Patanjali says here, is parinama, um, which basically means transform transformation. So 
the object that you're aware of, whether it's the breath or whatever, is changing. So you're open, you're concentrated on a flow, you're concentrated on change. What you're watching is not static. It's changing, but the attention becomes so still that it's one with that change. So that the observer and the field becomes the same thing. So I know it sounds so dry, but, <laughs> but I think it's good because we start to map out a little bit of, in terms of where we're at in our practice. Um, the second kind of concentration is um, <clears throat> um, fixed concentration, where there's an object and you don't leave it. And traditionally in meditation practice, there's 40 different objects of concentration. And I actually didn't know what they were. I kind of forgot. So today I looked it up. Um, so there's a few different ways of meditating on the breath. You can use the Brahma Viharas, so joy, compassion, and so on. Um, one of the meditations is on color discs, which is where you imagine in your body there are different horizontal discs, like mandalas or we call them, the word wheel is chakra, and you meditate on those different uh, disks. Um, or in traditional Buddhism, there's 32 parts of the body. Or there's 14 stages, stages of the decomposing corpse, which is my favorite one. And some of you, I don't know if anyone here has ever been with me where I've handed out the diagrams for, for that. Pat, have you? Yeah? Um, so I actually have... Somebody gave me 14 color photocopies, 8.5 by 11, from Burma of a decomposing corpse. And we uh, actually did this meditation once. Did we do the meditation? Or did we just look at the pictures? Yeah. Um, we've done the meditation where you actually really look deeply at these 14 stages of a decomposing corpse. It's hard to find them in Toronto because, you know, we put them away somewhere. Who knows what happens to all those bodies? But in many cultures, like if you go to India, there are charnel grounds where you know, they leave the body and you can go actually see the bodies decomposing. Um, anyways, so uh, these are different. Um, but interestingly enough, when someone's really concentrated, you can also give them different contemplations to concentrate on. Like a popular one is generosity just to really enter the field of feeling generosity as concentration practice. Or um, sangha, to really meditate in the realm of sangha. But to do this once someone really knows how to concentrate. Um, the first kind of concentration is this kind of fixed object concentration the second kind of concentration is momentary concentration. And momentary concentration is when it's just happening moment to moment to moment. And that leads to what's called vipassana or vipassana, which is insight. You don't get insight from the first kind of concentration. You get it from the second kind of concentration. In other words, where you're fully there with the object until you're not there anymore because you're so there that you're not there, nobody's there. Huh? And in the second kind of concentration, it's momentary, and that's the kind of concentration you get from within, and that's what gives you insight, um, lets you see your life differently. And it, it, it tends also to come just from a continuity of mindfulness. Um, I don't know if I want to go too... I, I made way too many notes tonight. I think I'm going to stop here. Um, I have more to say, but I'm not going to get deeper into the different kinds of samadhi. I will next week. Bija and nirbija, seeds and seedless. Um, does anybody have any comments or questions before I switch gears? Really? You, if you don't have questions about that, I'd be a little surprised. I am still a little confused. Okay. So the, the first kind of samadhi is the one-pointed. Uh-huh. And you're staying with the object. And the second kind you're moving. Um, the first kind of samadhi is the experience of 
oneness with what the object is, and there's no distractions. If, if you're still working with distractions, you're kind of at the top of the arc. It hasn't flipped yet. In the second kind of samadhi, there is, you're in the arc, you're, there's oneness with the object, and as that's happening, it's showing you new things. It's, it's giving you insight. My vocabulary is not quite there tonight because I, I really am stuffed up, but it's, it's allowing for insights to arise about um, how you're constructing suffering for yourself, the way you experience it, the futility of sticking to things, how when you really go deep into the feeling of the end of your exhale, you start to realize how you're holding on to things. It's a little hard to describe unless it's happened to you because you can't think your way into it. So I'm talking about it, but that's my experience. And I don't like talking too much about my experience because then you're going to measure your experience to my experience. But anyways, we're going to do it tonight. So at the end of your exhale... In the second level of samadhi, there's such depth in the feeling of it. There's no language, really. And then you start to see things about, for example, how, how you grab things. And it's a feeling that's it's like it's deeper than a kind of realization. It's like you just see something really fiercely, really honestly. Um, and it's kind of unshakable. Like once it happens, you just know something. And it's not knowledge about your life. It's like you've, you've seen into something about what we've been calling mindology rather than psychology. You, you see something about the nature of mind. And it's not usually like, oh, I've been holding on to that person for too long. Why do I keep looking at his Facebook page? <laughs> it's like, it's more like the language in my experience, it's a little more like a uh, little to the right, uh-huh, a little to the left, uh-huh, mm, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, mm, like, it's like that. Yeah. <laughs> Can you feel that a little? Like how that? Yeah, I think I got confused when you started getting to the different objects. Oh, yeah, I shouldn't have gone into that. No, it's okay. <laughs> what I was trying to say is that our focus is the breath. But actually, it's good for everybody to know that there's 40 objects you can choose from. Once you can get to samadhi. Back in Dharana, just pick the breath because it's just around or sounds or whatever. Don't choose the discs yet. If you think you're ready to choose the discs, please come see me. <laughs> ha. I think one of the problems with time is because it's an experiential insight. Yes. So I think that's really it's, it's, it's absolutely experiential insight. So, as you're saying that, but when you're just saying, I thought, yeah, well, then it makes sense. It's not a thinking thing. Yeah. It's not that kind of knowledge. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. I don't know. I always think about it as um, sort of insight into your heart. Uh-huh. Experimentation? Yeah. In what way? Like if you wanted to experiment on different feelings or Oh, like if you wanted to improvise and try different techniques? Yeah, but you have to be careful with that too. Yes, no improvising. <laughs> I don't recommend it. I think I think because most of us we're in a culture where we love to be eclectic and we, we like to try a lot of different things. 
Um, but I think when it comes to meditation technique, it's really good to settle deeply into one technique. And there will be a point from the inside of that technique, it'll start to show you what the next one should be. So insight will happen. It'll happen. Yeah, it'll happen. You, you can't make it happen. Or if you're talking about when you're experiencing samadhi. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you also experience pleasure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you said there's a, there's a moment where you come to a decision uh -huh. about pleasure yeah. or truth. Yes. What guides that decision? What guides that decision? Yeah. Um, usually you go see a teacher because it's really profound. And you say, this feels like this is what's going on. And the teacher will say, get really attached to that and really go into that. Or the teacher might say, um, notice the pleasure and let that go and, go and go back to your breathing. It really just depends on the person. That's why I'm offering this commentary, because potentially doesn't get into it too much. So. Um, it's really interesting because in the first four levels of samadhi, one of the ways, and I was going to try not to get into this tonight, but one, one of the things that distinguishes one level from the other is the presence of language. So in the first level of samadhi, there's not really any language. And then you come out of it, and then you conceptualize it. And that's actually the second level of samadhi. Because then you realize the conceptualization of what you just experienced takes it away. And then if you go back into it again, that's the third level of samadhi. It's, it's kind of interesting, right? Language, no language. Yeah. Uh-huh. What, um, what do you think about the breath leading to a specific part of the body? Uh-huh. And then kind of that part becoming the focus? Yes. Uh-huh. Sure. It's confusing. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, if you feel that there's a sensation in the body that's around a lot, um, then you can use that as an object of meditation. You can be mindful of that. And you can see if that leads to such a continuity of attention that um, you forget about yourself. Play around with it. Let me know. Yeah. Okay. Oh, let me say something else. There isn't two different kinds of samadhi. It's kind of absurd. There are and there aren't. My, they, there's a rhythm to this. Sometimes one's there, sometimes another's there. That, that's sort of how it works. Um, okay. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about how this is related to Occupy Wall Street. <laughs> Do you want to just stretch your legs a little for, take a deep breath? <clears throat> you see, my interest always with these teachings, I think it's important to remember something about these teachings. As helpful as they are, they also come at a time in human history where the private world of the individual is starting to appear. And so one of the things that can happen is that we notice in these texts that there's this stream that runs through them of how concentration leads to an inner life and not a lot of conversation about how this then extends into the cultural sphere, into action. And that has to do with the era um, that these uh, teachings came out of in India. And so... Um, 
one of the things that interests me a lot is how to apply this same framework to our social sphere. And because we're about to see this movement uh, of Occupy Wall Street expand on Saturday to 70 cities, um, we're going to really be asked as Dharma practitioners, what do you have to offer? And I think if we don't have something to offer, not only in terms of you know, self-care, but also in terms of the care of society, then I think uh, we'll be left in the wind and we won't be relevant. You don't have to agree or disagree. Let me keep going here a little bit. Unless, did, did you want? Well, I just don't know what this occupied. Oh, I'll tell you about it. Are, you're gonna, that's yeah, you're yeah, gonna, yeah. Okay. I thought some people already <clears throat> Okay. So, um, Occupy Wall Street started as a group of people, mostly influenced by a date set by Adbusters, um, to go to a park in the Wall Street district, uh, Zagodi Park, and to start to own that park as a kind of sit-in to protest what they were calling the difference between the 1% and the 99%. And their original theme was, we are the 99%. Um, the basic idea is that the system is not working right. Actually, the way this is done on Wall Street is that they're not allowed, the protesters, and this has grown huge, Protesters are not allowed to have lights, amplifiers, generators, or mics. So they've developed this amazing new form of the oral tradition where when you give a talk, do you want to try it? Okay. So let's say there's a thousand people here and we have no mic. So I give a sentence. When I give a talk, when I give a talk, and then it will repeat until it's done. And then the person who's giving a talk will um, say the next sentence. And the last person puts it on Twitter or YouTube or whatever. So actually there's a whole new form of pedagogy actually because these speeches have become really profound because the people giving the speeches have 10 minutes and they have to speak really slowly and they, don't have, they, they can't say too much or it can't be repeated, but you re hear it repeated so many times that you really get the impact of the talk. It's really profound. Um, so if you watch some of the talks, like it was interesting two nights ago, Naomi Klein's talk, you can hear four, five, six echoes of each sentence. And that's how you can judge how many people were there at that event. Um, there are way too many people without jobs. And there are way too many homeless people. Um, some of you might know that in the United States, 44.6% um, of homeless people, of, of unemployed people, have been unemployed for over a year. And this is really bad for their health. This is bad for their families. It's bad for everybody. And there's too many needs we have to fulfill to have so many unemployed people. Um, financial markets are important. They're not bad. Um, financial markets are supposed to allocate capital and manage risks. This is what they do. Um, the markets have mislocated capital and have actually generated risk. And now the public is bearing the loss of those misdeeds. Um, you might not feel it so much in Toronto, but you will. And I travel a lot in the United States, and a lot in Europe, and in Greece, and in Wisconsin, and in California. Things are really rough. Um, you can't socialize losses and privatize gains. You can't do that and expect people to just sit around. Um, the banking system took risks, and then nobody took the money away from them. They lost out in their gamble, but nobody ever took the money away. Um, 
In economics, I learned a new word today. This is called asymmetric investment. You can guess what that means. But what that actually means is the banking system is preying on the poorest Americans. So I would call this predatory investing. This is a growth economy going wrong. And it all is because of trickle-down economics and speculation. And if you don't know what speculation is, it's when it's like the price of oil, right? The price of oil was 79 cents a gallon not so long ago. Now it's $1.30. So the price of oil has not gone up per gallon. It's only gone up to $1.30 because of speculation. But the actual cost of the oil at 79 cents is still 79 cents. So this is uh, why people are angry. Um, but um, we all knew about it, just like we knew about the tar sands, somebody will say 25 years from now. Um, and nobody did anything. But we're one body, so there is no 99% and there's no 1%. We're one body. Um, <clears throat> the interesting thing about this movement is that the media is pressuring this movement because they want to know what are your demands. So the first thing is the movement is leaderless. There is no leader. There is no ideology. And the most interesting part to me of this movement is that, first of all, it doesn't have an expiry date. It's not like the G20 is here for eight days. We're going to protest the G20. We do, this is going to go on. And the second thing is that it doesn't have demands yet. And the media can't figure out how to cover it because there are no demands. So the media are saying, what are your demands? And the movement is saying, just wait. We don't know how much power we have yet. So it's too early to start to articulate demands. So when I started to see how this was going on, I saw the parallel in how Patanjali talks about the space between the end of your exhale and the beginning of your inhale. The space between the end of a thought and the beginning of a new thought. Personally, it's really hard to bear witness to the ending of something without creating a demand to replace it with something. So because there's no demand, the media are saying, well, you're communist. You must be communist. But that's not what's being talked about. And this movement is trying to stay in this patient, liminal, transitional space of being able to say enough is enough without yet articulating demands. This is a really inspiring thing and really hard. The other thing is, the media loves violence. And the protesters in Wall Street are not giving the media broken windows and burning police cars. And that's why this has been such a tricky thing to negotiate for CNN. <laughs> and some of you might know what happened today is Geraldo Rivera went to report on the protest at Wall Street and they surrounded him and they chanted so loud he couldn't do his uh, reporting. And then nobody would speak to him. So he went to ask, you know, what are you demanding? What are you saying? Nobody would talk to him. And he left. And the place was, you know, cheering apparently all afternoon today. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I think it was like uh, Fox News Lies. Something like that. Okay. Some kind of Rupert Murdoch. My belief is like the anti-Vietnam War. <clears throat> it's that it's building up in a way that it started in a, in a small way and nobody really believed it would go anywhere. Yeah. And it actually stopped the war. And yeah. So something could really Yeah, happen. something will happen. And, and that's why it, what a lot of people, Michael Moore, Naomi Klein, Paul Hawking, Bill McKibben, all the people who have been talking lately are saying the same thing to the protesters. Please don't treat this as this is a beautiful day. One day we'll remember how nice it was to be protesting here together. 
that what's important is what happens after this protest and tomorrow and the next day. And, and that in the 60s, real change happened. And now it's harder and more crucial. And the shadow side of all the economics, I could cite statistics till we're asleep or depressed, but the shadow of the economic issue that people are not talking about is the environment. That to have a growth-based economy, it's already grown bigger than the biosphere. So that's also in this um, 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 uh, movement. Um, we're allowed to think in alternative ways. We're, we're allowed to have a better imagination. So here's what uh, the Slovenian philosopher Slav, Slavoj Žižek um, says. Um, this was, I wish you could hear this because he had to say it sentence by sentence. It gets repeated over and over and over. This isn't like a quote. This is him at Wall Street four days ago. He says to the group, they tell you we are dreamers. The true dreamers are those who think things can go on indefinitely the way they are. We are not dreamers. We're awakening from a dream which is turning into a nightmare. We are not destroying anything. We're only witnessing how the system is now destroying itself. We all know the classic scene from cartoons. The cart reaches a precipice but it goes on walking, ignoring the fact that there's nothing underneath. Have you all seen this in the cartoons? Only when the driver looks down and notices, it falls down. This is what we're doing here. We're telling the guys there on Wall Street, hey, look down. <laughs> and we all know we can think of all kinds of ways of inventing rockets and building bicycles out of carbon fiber, but we can't think of an alternative to this capitalist structure. And Zizek says this is the end of capitalism and democracy. It's the end of that marriage. And the pressure is on now for people to say, well, then what are you going to replace it with? And nobody knows. And this movement is trying to stay in this space of we don't know, but the way predatory capitalism is working can't continue ecologically. Can't continue the number of homeless. The Toronto uh, uh, food, uh, uh, food Bank doesn't have enough food. My mother cooks food for homeless people at the stop on Thursdays. They, they've been having between another 100 people the past few months. They're getting close to 300 people coming for lunch on Thursday. That is deeply unfair. Because we should be farming up. There's a lot we need to be doing. So um, I thought I would finish with a koan that I think sums all this together. And some of you have been working on this koan a lot. We've been exploring it together. I'm going to give it tomorrow on Wall Street. So, a student once asked Shitu, what is the Buddha? <clears throat> Shitu said, you don't have Buddha mind. The student said, I'm human. I run around and I have ideas. Shitu said, yeah, people who are active and have ideas, they're also Buddha. The student said, well, why am I not a Buddha? And Shitu says, because you are not willing to be human. In other words, he wants to be a Buddha. He wants to be a Buddha. And he's clever. So he's saying, well, I'm like everybody else. And isn't the Buddha ordinary? And the teacher's saying, no, you don't have it. Why don't you have it? He's trying to transcend. He's trying to transcend his life. The 1% are trying to transcend. But you can't. You can't transcend. 
What you need to do is you need to remain human. And I actually think that this is the message of Occupy Toronto, of Occupy San Francisco, of Occupy Montreal, is you need to remain human. And why is it so hard to imagine a, an alternative way of living? If you say, what's an alternative to capitalism? People say, oh, you can't think about that. Zizek says, you can send people to the moon, but if you say, could we raise taxes a little to feed the hungry? They'll say, oh, no, that's impossible. That's absurd. That's totalitarian. Um, can we accept what's happening? To not remain human is how we form ideology. It's how we get schisms. It's how we do this in our family. When we try and transcend our family, we cause so much suffering in our family. Because we're not human. You can't build a community without being a person. And the goal of yoga, the goal of the Dharma, is to become a person. To not transcend your life. And to remain human. And so, um, one of the things that's been going on in the Buddhist communities, a lot of us teachers are talking a lot right now on the internet, because we're trying to figure out how to talk to our sanghas about this movement and take a position. Because in some of the last protests we've seen in the last few years, a lot of sanghas didn't take a position. And so I'm encouraging you, and you can do whatever you want with this, to learn about this movement. It's really interesting what's going on. And to learn about it because it's not lefty. It's all different kinds of people. It's not democratic. It's not NDP. It's not Republican. It's all the people who've had their houses foreclosed. You know, this summer, I was in Maine. And getting to Maine, I drove from Vermont through New Hampshire through Maine. And you drive into small towns. And every other house is for sale. You drive down the Main Street and every, all the property is for sale. And you know that there is some smart banker buying it now. <laughs> right? Somebody is out there picking it up. So, um, we're in that space when we meditate of being in the in-between. This is how you create new samskaras, personally and socially. To, to be able to be present, to bear witness to something without fixing your view and knowing what it is and knowing what it's going to be. But you're motivated to be there because you're human. Walter Benjamin says that a revolution is not just being on a train going faster. It's when you start pulling the handbrake, the emergency brake. And I think this Occupy movement is just people trying to pull the brake, just to kind of slow things down before there is another bailout. So um, I encourage you to get educated, and I encourage you just to go to the Occupy Wall Street website and learn about what's going on. And now there's Occupy Toronto, and it starts on Saturday. And Friday there's a meeting about it, and you can learn lots about it, and it's really interesting. Where's and, the Friday um, I, I think it's in Queen's Park. I'm not sure. Yeah. And I think for me what's interesting is it's... I've never heard so many people part of a movement that are so articulate and that are patient. It's really a beautiful thing to see. And the last thing I'll say is if you go online and you look at the speeches by Cornell West and Zizek and the economist um, who, who spoke last night, um, 
I forgot his name. They all talk about how this is a spiritual movement. I've never heard any of those thinkers talk in those terms. And it's interesting to see these people connecting spiritual practice and social action. It's really beautiful. Really, really beautiful. So, um, one or two minutes. Does anybody have anything they want to say before we finish? Lori's burning to say something. How did you know? I, you know, I've known you a long time. <laughs> and I've also finished chapter three. There's <laughs> a really great YouTube clip of uh, Fox News went in and uh, they were interviewing some of the activists and they just appeared that they picked this guy in the crowd who's really unassuming looking and he just blew them away mm-hmm. like and it never actually got posted it never yeah. got shown on Fox News but you can google you know uh, protester Fox News whatever and it'll come up yeah. he's had uh, 5 or 15 million hits already wow. but yep. it was incredible what he had he was just a young kid he looked like a skateboarder he was yeah. so unassuming and they started asking questions and he knew exactly like he'd been trained uh-huh. and uh, it was it's really phenomenal what's yeah. The signs are so good. Some of the placards are just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Really fantastic. Well, I think it was Bill McKibben who spoke today or uh-huh. yesterday saying that um, um, they want to occupy Wall Street because Wall Street has been occupying the atmosphere. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that was yeah. his environmental the other thing is all the people working in the buildings, all the traders and the lawyers, are just being, they're being left alone. It's, it's not a protest against those people. It's a protest about a system. And that's also a really interesting thing, that uh, the protesters are just leaving the people going in and out of the buildings alone, which is really interesting. Any, anybody else? Questions, comments? In two weeks, Judy will come here and Could she'll take your questions. Could I just say the hopeful thing that yeah. there are countries in the world yeah. who are uh, much more evolved, and for anyone who's ever been to the Scandinavian countries, where yeah. people speak very naturally about their appreciation of their taxation system, yeah. because they know that it gives yeah. them excellent child care and yeah. excellent elder care, and it is a completely different concept of society. Yeah. And, and it's the reason that they are the leaders in the world and, yeah. and all the measures about human yeah. development. Yeah. And uh, so not everybody's burning up. Yeah. Yeah. And there yeah. are people who've got pretty good balance. Yeah. Yeah. So it's nice to remember that. Yeah. That while For the sure. US system is burning. Yeah. And the indictment that you see, I mean, we don't have that issue in Canada. Yeah. Because I think the cooperation of, of Canada historically has been a deeper yeah. feeling of how we've uh, we've cooperated on so many different levels. Yeah. Well, I you know I don't want to get too far into a political discussion, yeah. okay. um, even though I got to rant for a while. But the main thing I want to encourage is just get educated mm-hmm. about what the issues are and in your own psyche to hold the place of not deciding yet. And and just to feel what that's like. Uh, As humans, this is so hard for us to do. And it's the only way this thing's going to work. So so thank you. And and please get get educated about the issues. Um, Some of them are more shocking than you might think. Okay, let's finish chanting. Thank you for allowing the tangent. Um, I'll be at Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Montreal and Occupy Toronto. And so um, I'll be excited to try and keep going through the Yoga Sutra Chapter 3 and somehow weave in uh, what's going on.